Hello, friends. I'm Luke, and I serve on the music team at Holy Family. We continue to hear stories from people like you who listen to the Holy Family podcast and consider Holy Family your church. And whether you're someone who's constantly on the go, hasn't found a church community where you live to which you can belong, or someone who's wondering about the shape of your faith, we are honored to be with you by sharing these reflections from our Sunday liturgies. We rely on the generosity of our congregation, which includes you wherever you listen, to help our ministry achieve and maintain financial health. If this podcast has been a gift to you, would you consider making a contribution so that we can continue offering resources that welcome questions, curiosities, and doubts? You can make a gift by following the link in our show notes. That's at holyfamilyhtx.org. From Holy Family HTX, an Episcopal church for people without a church, this is the Holy Family Podcast, a collection of ideas about leading a Jesus-centered life. We clearly explore the church's understandings while bringing our own questions, curiosities, and doubts, and we never demand fake agreement. Theological exploration is just better that way. So, let's take a moment of silence as we get ready to contemplate today's ideas. I once heard a bishop say something like, there is a difference between differences that make a difference and differences that don't make a difference. And knowing that difference makes a difference. Now, in my experience, this is especially true when we start reading the Bible. If we are not careful, we can too quickly miss crucial details that will make a huge difference for what we do with certain texts. For example, if we too quickly read because either, number one, we think that we are familiar with the story, and so we go, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, I know how this one goes, and then, yeah, right, and then we just kind of, our eyes roll to the back of our head, and we wait for the story to be over, and we say, yep, got it, or because we only know how to read things you know, like they're a text message at this point, and we just like blitz through them, we say, yep, got it, quick, and just kind of instantly respond. When we do that, our chances of reading carefully drastically diminish. Furthermore, in love, in our hubris, we love to take stories that are about God and twist them back into stories that are about us instead. Because the reality is most of us find ourselves way more interesting than we find God. And once we have decentered God and we insert ourselves into the middle of it, we begin reading these stories in such a way that magically play along with our preconceived and pre-cooked ideas about who God is and what God wants. And it's really not all that surprising that God loves my people and hates my enemies. It's really kind of a lovely trick. It works every time. Today's gospel that Sarah proclaimed for us is a classic example of this. If you blitz through today's gospel, you might end up telling it a particular kind of way. 
Sometimes the storms of life come and they can be scary. And when that happens, you're gonna have to decide what kind of person you're gonna be. Are you gonna be a person who trusts in Jesus? You're gonna have faith that if we want to, we can walk on the water. Or are you gonna be the type of person that takes your eyes off Jesus, instead looks at the waves and begins to fall down? But wait, there is good news. When we fall, Jesus is there to save us if we will but call on his name. Therefore, if we really wanna do something exciting in life, we need to be the people who are willing to step out of the boat and then you too can walk on water. Now that telling of the story is kind of a classic example of a be better sermon. It's kind of what it boils down to, me telling you to just, you know, be better. And it's a kind of a classic textbook example of a quit being afraid and start believing sermon. And I get it. Preachers like me have trafficked in those kinds of homilies for a while, but I'm not quite sure they actually have anything to do with Jesus Christ. Here's why that telling of the story leaves much to be desired for me. I have known many faithful people in life that have felt and do feel real fear. And they feel it in such a way that, at least from my vantage point, not once calls their faith into question. There are people who just do not believe that you either have faith or you have fear. There are people who have the kind of range to absorb and live with both. And, I mean, I know this is an Episcopal church, so y'all aren't going to actually shout me down any Sunday, but there's enough, I mean, for Episcopal, there's enough hmm, hmm, hmm in the room right now that, like, you know, by Episcopal standards, that's like, Everybody's going, yeah, that's exactly right. I've, I, know, I know those people too. Now, <laughs> uh, furthermore, have you ever thought about like in that story of the, tell, in that telling of the story, what precisely is Jesus Christ's angle here? Okay, so let's say you get them all out on the water. Now what? Like, what do you possibly do next? What's the next move? It seems like a very strange request from Jesus. And furthermore, it actually might be a little cruel. If Jesus is able to walk on water, why would he ask Peter to do something that Peter probably can't do or at least is not going to do well? This is a Peter-centered reading of the story. Where we privilege a caricature in the story, we make it about them, we tell it from their perspective, and then we create a moral to the story that amounts to basically be like this person or don't be like this person. So instead of a Peter-centered reading of the story, I want to give you a Jesus-centered reading of the story. It begins by saying Jesus Christ goes up onto a mountain to pray by himself. And all of his friends get in a boat and set off. Now, after some time, the winds pick up while they're on the boat. And Jesus then leaves the mountain and he begins walking toward his friends on the boat, on the lake. Now, eventually his friends see this and, you know, I can't blame them. They flip out and they start screaming and they say, it's a ghost. And they get really scared. Jesus says, 
Do not fear. It is me. Let's press that for a moment. Don't fear what exactly? A Peter-centered story might say, well, don't fear the winds. Don't fear the waves. It's okay. I got this. And I'm sure that they were scary, but you know, this was not their first time on a boat ever. A Jesus-centered story imagines that the reason they're crying out in fear is because they think they're actually seeing a ghost. And it says that they actually scream. Now, think about the last time that you were so startled you actually just let out a, a noise rather than words, right? That, that's scared. They are scared that they are seeing a ghost. And what is happening is that Jesus Christ's friends lack the resources to accurately interpret God's presence among them. I wonder if you have ever lacked the resources to accurately interpret God's presence among you. At first, the presence of Jesus Christ scared them. But then Jesus gives a revelation. It's me. Y'all, take heart and do not be afraid of what you think you see. Now comes the part of the story when Peter does pipe up. In a Peter-centered telling of the story, Peter's response is the kind of boldless faith that we all love to have and ought to be. By God, I'm going to step out on the boat, Lord. No fear. But in a Jesus-centered telling of the story, Peter's acts are actually kind of heartbreaking. Peter's the one that cooks up this idea about coming out there. Peter's response is heartbreaking because it evidences that he has no trust in Jesus Christ's revelation. Jesus has already come to Peter. Jesus has already told Peter who he is, and Peter says, uh, you got some proof? I'd like something a little more firm than this. In fact, if it's really you, then how about you just pull off a miracle? How about you make me walk on the water? Make me just like you. Then I'll know it's you. Now, Jesus does not blow the whistle and cry out to his team. Okay, guys, it's time to run another test to see what kind of levels of faith I'm working with here. No, this is not a story about Jesus testing Peter. It's the opposite. Peter is testing Jesus. I do not believe that you are who you say you are. So I've cooked up a little show here, and if you can demonstrate for me and work something out in my life, then maybe I'll believe that you are who you say you are. My dear sisters, brothers, and siblings, it is we who never want to trust God. We are the ones who always want to make God prove God's self to us. We always are willing to believe in God after God works a mighty act on our behalf so that it's obvious God is working. Jesus has already come to Peter on his own. But instead, Peter resists it, distrusts God's presence in his life, and instead tries to make Jesus prove it. Now, Jesus, being a good God, always plays along with our silly little games. Okay, buddy, that's, okay, sure, give it to me. Instead of scolding us, maybe he rolls his eyes a little bit, wishing that he had, didn't have to go through this dog and pony show, but in fact, pay close attention to what the text actually says. 
Once Peter like throws this pitch at Jesus, you can almost hear the sigh in it. Jesus just says one word, come, I'll play your little game, come. And Peter steps out and he starts to sing. I mean, this is how our hubris for knowing God on our own always ends up. Instead of trusting that God has told us who God is in Jesus Christ, we resist that. We say, mm, not quite so sure. And then we end up drowning, which one, doesn't actually prove God's existence to us. And two, just makes our situation worse. Jesus, being Jesus, rescues Peter from himself places him in the boat, and then says, why do you doubt? Again, in a Peter tell, Peter-centered telling of this story, Jesus means something like, how come you didn't have fearless faith and I'm more powerful than the storm? If you didn't have, if you didn't have like, not trusted in me, you could have walked on water. But in a Jesus-centered telling of the story, Jesus means, how come you didn't believe me that, you know, when I told you that I was who I was, you, you didn't, that, that didn't work for you. Why didn't you trust me? Instead, you just ended up trying to prove it and all you really kind of did was embarrass yourself. I love how author Debbie Thomas puts it. She writes, maybe when Jesus asks us why we doubt, what he's really asking us is, why do you doubt me? Why do you not trust that I will be honest with you? Why do you doubt that I am with you? Why do you doubt that I am for you? Why do you doubt that I am in you and around you? I mean, after all this time, why do you still feel the need to test me? I've come here today to tell you that this is a story about trusting Jesus, church. And instead of trusting Jesus when he speaks, we always want some sort of external proof to make sure that we have something more solid than the living God's own self-revelation to us. I mean, the reality is we all have guesses about who we think God is, but that's not the same thing as letting God be the one to tell us who God is. I mean, haven't you ever felt irritated when somebody tries to define you or pigeonhole you without actually letting you get a chance to speak for yourself? I hate that. Don't you feel like you ought to be invited to weigh in on, you know, who you are? In theology, this is exactly what's going on with Revelation. How much more then should we just let God be the one to tell us who God is in Jesus Christ? The modern theological name for this resistance of ours, it's, it's called foundational. Big word, simple concept. It's called foundationalism because instead of letting Jesus be our foundation for how we evaluate truth about God, we always like to build our knowledge of God on some kind of other foundation. And we say, Jesus Christ is good and fine, but I'm gonna need something with a little more grit to it to really trust. And then I can tag Jesus in later. Foundationalism denies that God alone is the one who best knows who God is. This story tells us we should be the people who trust Jesus to tell us a true story about who God is. Furthermore, 
I've come to see that this story is actually a story about the story. Think about where this story begins and where it ends. The story begins with Jesus on a mountain and it ends with Jesus in a boat with people. I wonder if you can hear this story as another way of telling the entire story about God. Jesus has left the heights of heaven to come down toward humanity when we are in the midst of our plight. Jesus has announced the identity of God to us. This is who I am. But we resist this announcement from God about who God is. And all it really does is make us sink even deeper into despair. Graciously, in our resistance, in our hostility toward God, Jesus Christ delivers us by yanking us up through the waters of baptism. And then he sits with us in a boat. The boat is church. Did you know that from earliest Christianity, the church was frequently referred to as a boat? This story encapsulates the story that we call gospel, good news. In Jesus Christ, God comes to rescue us even after we have been hostile towards God coming to us. And once we have been rescued, we discover the heart of the gospel. We thought God's just stayed up on the mountains. And we humans just have to deal with the storms of life. In Jesus Christ, we discover that the living God has come to us for one reason and one reason only. To be with us in the boat. And if we continue to be hostile to this and resist it, we're just going to keep embarrassing ourselves by asking the living God to prove that God is God by having us do something impressive. Or, instead, when Jesus comes to us and says, it's me, we can do what Peter did not do. We can rejoice, and we can say, come aboard. Find more resources to help you lead a Jesus-centered life at holyfamilyhtx.org. Again, it's holyfamilyhtx.org.